Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Heavenly Father, I'm just so grateful that we have uh, opportunity to hear your word this morning. God, we really are just tools in your hand. We're your hands, we're your feet. This morning, Tim gets to be a mouthpiece for you, sharing your word. I pray that our hearts will be open, our minds will be open to receive your truth, your word, which transforms our hearts. Lord, we know the anointed teaching of your word transforms lives, and that's what we need today. And so I just pray for outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Bring your word to life. May it cut to the heart like a double-edged sword. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much and uh, great to be at Creekside. I uh, come from a little village just south of Brisbane you wouldn't have heard of called Melbourne. Uh, I do love the weather up here, I must admit. It's uh, winter in Melbourne and uh, it's so nice to actually see some sun. Although I know you've had a lot of rain up here, haven't you? And uh, it's been troubling in some parts of uh, Brisbane and certainly Northern Rivers area. Uh, I want to really begin with a couple of scriptures. So if uh, you want to follow this, this is uh, Jeremiah and chapter 29. And because the print is so small, I'm going to get my glasses on. I... uh, I'm so old I didn't study ancient history. I lived through ancient history. I now need glasses. Jeremiah 29 and verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that, they, so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for its welfare. Its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers uh, who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you into listening to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. And then the promise that you'll be in Babylon for 70 years but I will come and do good things, the things I've promised and bring you home again. From Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke chapter 12, and uh, Jesus in the early chapter of Luke 12 has said some pretty strong things about the Pharisees being hypocrites. Now he turns a little bit to the crowd, and he says, when you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, here comes a shower, and you are right. When the south wind blows, you say, today will be a scorcher. And it is. You fools, you hypocrites, 
You know how to interpret the weather signs of earth, of earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. There was an activist uh, from Latin America called Ivan Illich. He was a great philosopher, activist, and he was once asked, what's the most powerful way to change society? Is it revolution? Do you work out the power brokers, the wealthy? Do you actually target them, kidnap them, maybe execute them, take them out of power and distribute their wealth? Is it revolution? Or is it reformation? Do you slowly put your people in the commanding heights of power, in the educational institutions, in politics, in the economy, and through your people being in power, have a reformation, and that way change society. Illich said, it's neither revelation, a revolution, nor is it reformation. If you want to change society, tell an alternative story. The gospel is the alternative story to change society. The gospel is a story that very simply says, love God and love your neighbor. That's it. But it's an alternative story. People don't love God. People have lots of idols in our culture. They may not be the Greco-Roman gods, but lots of idols, the idols of power, of wealth, of success, the idols that say in the story that's dominant in our culture, the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure. Have you heard that? Or the storyline that says the purpose of life is to maximize profit. Have you heard that? What... The alternative story of the gospel says is the purpose of life is to love God and to love your neighbor. If you want to know what meaning is and humans are meaning maximizing animals, meaning is locating yourself in God's story, telling that story, living out that story. You know, the only job Christians have is to proclaim the alternative story. The only mission Christians have is to live consistently out of that story. The world is lost in worshipping its idols, as I think I said last night. Humans are made to worship. They will worship something. The only question is what they'll worship. Is it pleasure? Is it profit? Is it sex? Is it power? They will worship something. Or will they be set free to worship God? And in worshiping God, to actually love their neighbor and transform the world. Well, Jesus is quite strong. Hypocrites, he said, you can read the weather. Why don't you read the times? Well, the times, the present times, keep throwing up different challenges. Right through history, Christians have had to read the times that we're in. Jesus tells us, try and read those times. Right now, the times produce for many of us, including me, grief. What has happened to the Christian culture in Australia? 
We uh, all read the ABS census just out for the first time. Christians are a minority in this nation. Just 44% ticked the box Christian. 30 years ago, it was up around 90%. A minority. Even more shock and horror. Those who tick the box no religion are almost the same size. They're up to 39%. I must admit, when I heard those figures reported, I felt grief. I felt like I was in exile in my own country, that we're losing the influence of the Christian culture. The secular forces are on the march. What will become of us? The times right now throw up challenges. And Jesus says, discern the times, understand them. Well, in discerning the times and understanding, and I think the first thing we have to discern is those who tick the box no religion don't mean no beliefs. When you actually drill down and ask them, they'll believe in astrology and karma and reincarnation. They'll believe in, um, like my neighbours across the road, earthing. I have these wonderful neighbours. They're my age. They are utterly, utterly biblically illiterate. When my wife and I, three years just before COVID, were leading a tour in the steps of the Apostle Paul through Greece, Greece and Turkey and told our neighbours, they said, who's the Apostle Paul? We thought, you know, maybe they just needed prompting. We said, you know, you ever heard on the Damascus Road? And can, No, Where, where's the Damascus Road? Is that in Frankston <laughs> where we live? They have absolutely no religious literacy at all. It's incredible to realise that there are people like that. But they profoundly believe in earthing. I'd never heard of earthing. Anyone here heard of earthing? A few of you. They bring us books on earthing. They're actually evangelising us. And they ask us if we've read them. Earthing's where you, you know, bare feet on the grass, they Energy flows through you, it helps you flourish and heals and gives you clarity. There's earthing rugs without which our neighbour Adele's brought over. You plug them in, you don't even have to turn on the PowerPoint. The earthing rug with the, earth, uh, rug with the earthing wire just out, uh, apparently helps all these spiritual forces flow through your body. They believe. They would have ticked the box, no religion. But they're very open to belief and we're reading the books on earthing, and we're sharing our faith with them. And it's actually no pushback. It's like novel. Wow. Oh, tell me more about the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Never heard of him. When we understand the times, we need to understand that uh, faith and beliefs, or spirituality as people prefer to call it, spirituality if you really ask me, is just the modern word for religion. <laughs> religion is so on the nose that we all say spirituality and then that's fine. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about something that claims me, something that I worship, something that gives me meaning because we can't live without that story. We can't prove the story, it takes faith 
But we absolutely need the story to have meaning. Humans are aching for meaning. One of the great uh, survivors of Auschwitz, Viktor Frankl, very few survivors out of Auschwitz, he said our only question in Auschwitz was, would we survive? Viktor Frankl survived. He created what was called logotherapy, meaning therapy. He said, you know, Freud might have said the most basic drive is sex. Adler said it's anxiety. Others said it's power. Viktor Frankl said, after being in Auschwitz, I discovered the most basic drive is meaning. People who could try and find meaning could stay alive and potentially survive. wasn't always their choice. But Frankl said something that struck me. He said, those few of us that survived, after Auschwitz, we had an even more terrifying question. The question was, survive for what? What is the meaning of our life now? What Christian faith does primarily is it answers the question of meaning. Who am I? Why am I here? Who created me? What's it all about? Is there something for me to do? Those questions are profoundly important. Well, there's a second uh, fear, not just that we're in exile because now we're a Christian minority, but the fear that's sort of generational, is shared by secular and religious. I remember my parents when I was young, I was eavesdropping, they didn't know I was listening, and they were speaking sort of in whispers, soberly, gravely, worryingly, about what would happen to us, their kids in this culture. It was the 60s, it was free love and drugs and Vietnam War protests and nuclear weapons and a culture that, as they saw it, was pretty scary and hostile. What would happen to us in, in this culture? Well, they had three kids, I've got two siblings, we each turned out okay, you know. Well, my sister's a Baptist minister, so she and I turned out okay. <laughs> okay, my brother was a minister of the crown. Maybe he turned out okay too. I'm sure my kids have heard me and my wife when they were growing up gravely, soberly, worryingly talking about what would happen to them and this culture and now social media, there is a great generational anxiety. Let me read some words. People lose a sense of shame. Rudeness is taken as a sign of sophistication. People praise the pleasure of the moment. They lose respect for leaders. The young no longer defer to the old. And the old, well... They behave as if they were young. The difference between the sexes is blurred. People get irritated by the least touch of authority and they dislike any rules that inhibit their freedom to do as they like. Is that someone from my parents' generation talking? Is that an American evangelical? Is that a Christian Australian leader talking? Who said those words? 
Plato in the 5th century BC. Plato. About Athens in democracy, uh, the democracy of Athens. Plato. Two and a half thousand years ago. When we get generational anxieties about how bad things are, we need to quote Plato, <laughs> right? In other words, we need to discern the times, to keep perspective, to say when we go, oh, it's all so bad, and we're in exile and all's lost, to actually go, that might just be taking our focus away from what is the main game, to proclaim the alternative story, to live out the alternative story, to say focused on it, whatever else we think we can be engaged in. Now, I think this is rather important when we come to Jeremiah 29. They are in exile, and Jeremiah says, plant vineyards, plant gardens, build houses, marry, increase. What Jeremiah is picking up is actually the first chapters of Genesis. The first chapters of Genesis is when God walks with Adam and Eve. God has a relationship with them. And those first chapters really, I would summarise like this. They're really about sex, gardening and God. Be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve. Tend the garden. Walk with God. Doesn't sound too bad, actually. Jeremiah is actually saying the same thing. It's about sex, gardening, and God here in exile. That's what it's about. And when this pagan city prospers that you're going to pray for, you will prosper, trust me, your welfare, its welfare are tied up together. What I really want to take you to is the next verses of uh, Jeremiah. Uh, because remember they're in a foreign land where the temples of Marduk, the Babylonian god, not Yahweh, are everywhere. And he says, do not let the diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to them. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. What were these false prophets, Jewish false prophets, prophesying? Almost certainly they were prophesying, resist, fight, rebel, subvert, don't settle down, don't be at ease. They were recommending, really, culture wars, to put it in today's language. And Jeremiah says they're prophesying lies. It sounds right, because they're saying we're faithful to Yahweh and his temple, uh, this God, and you can't accommodate, you can't be prospering here. They're saying fight, subvert. There are lots of voices in the Christian church today saying that. Jesus says, discern the times, understand the times. It is extraordinary to read Jeremiah. Jeremiah earlier had been saying to the Jews in Jerusalem, don't fight the Babylonians. You know, that would be like a Christian prophet today in a church in Australia saying, China is coming, they're going to invade Australia, 
don't fight them. What do you reckon would happen to that prophet today? That's what Jeremiah was doing back then. That's what he was doing. Now, I'm not drawing an analogy and saying, you know, we, we shouldn't fight, but I'm just saying this is how extraordinary Jeremiah's message is. You see, back in Jeremiah's time, all gods are local. Once a people are defeated, their gods couldn't operate beyond that soil. You carry the people off into captivity because their gods were left behind on that soil. They were powerless. They were useless. They were gods of blood and soil. Gods were all local. What's extraordinary about Christian faith is we believe in a God who's God of all. Christianity was the first internationalist vision. The world could only ever unite around their gods on their soil or family, kith and kin, tribe, nation, flag, you know, our, or a common enemy. That's how through history the world unites. And here is a Christian message saying neither Jew nor Gentile. Jews and Gentiles could not stand each other. Neither slave nor free. All gods were local. Well, gods only reigned supreme over their own territory. The chief god of Egypt was Ra, the chief god of uh, the Moabites, Shamos, the chief god of Babylon, Marduk. The standing among gods rises and falls with the fate of their nations. If their nation's defeated, they're defeated. What Jeremiah is teaching the children of Israel in exile in Babylon is quite profound for world history and Christian faith, for the alternative story. It is teaching that the God of the Israelites is not only the God of the Israelites, but the God of everyone. That his power extends not only over Israel, but this God's power extends everywhere. It's a radical split, if you like, between God and a local people. When we start to get nationalistic and flag-waving and our God, remember, that's not the Christian God. This is a God that is much greater. Jeremiah uh, teaches us that such a God cannot be captured. You know, the point of the plagues under Moses in Egypt is not just to hasten the freedom of the Israelite slaves, the point of the plagues is to show Pharaoh that God's power extends over Egypt. That's a completely foreign notion. So the story of the Israelites in Egypt is really a criticism of political blood and soil gods, local gods. And Jeremiah is reminding them that even in exile where Yahweh's power is not meant to extend God. Yahweh absolutely is still there and in charge and telling them, settle down and plant, have kids, trust me. And the prophets are going, no, if we're loyal to our God, our temple has been destroyed by these bees in Babylonians. That's been destroyed and we've got to subvert and fight and go after them. 
Well, this is really important to understand that a supreme power, Yahweh, intervenes in defense of the powerless, slaves, exiles, refugees, is what they are in Babylon. You know, Jeremiah interpreted the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity of uh, the Israelites, not as the defeat of a people and a people's God, but as the defeat of a people, the children of Israel, by their own God. <laughs> that is a totally foreign notion in the ancient world. It's sort of a bit of a foreign notion even today. Back in 2013, I was uh, in Moscow. G20 was on. Putin had the presidency of the G20. I was leading what's called C20, Civil Society 20, an outreach group of the G20. And I, with three other civil society leaders of different nationalities, had an hour and a half's meeting with President Putin in his dasha out of Moscow. He had the TV cameras and the media are in for the whole thing because he controls the media. Normally you have meetings with the leaders, you make a press statement later. He had the media in the whole time. So secure was he. Putin and I and a few, the others, we went to head to head on Syria and why he was closing down Russian charities. And then he was fascinated I was a reverend. Putin was wearing a cross. Putin said to me, I... I'm giving millions of rubles to the Russian Orthodox Church. We're building three churches a day. I'm telling Russian Orthodox, young, young Russians to go back to church. There's nothing in their lives. They're too materialistic. I'm listening to this and thinking, I can't fault this. <laughs> this is pretty interesting. He's saying, and the West has lost its Christianity, and I'm defending the Christianity of the Russian church. 2013. I pushed my luck a bit. I said, President Putin, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, I support your encouragement of Christianity in churches. I said, but then why did you, why did you send to Siberia and lock up Pussy Riot, the girl band that sang in protest, it was a protest against Putin, but they sang in a Russian Orthodox church in Moscow, Church of the Saviour, Christ the Cathedral. Putin said, well, it's blasphemous. And the church was offended. And that's why I, pu I punished them hard. I said, sure, sure. I know the church was offended, but surely a Christian church would say, we're offended, but the gospel, the alternative story, is about forgiveness. We forgive them. Don't send them to Siberia. Putin had a look of utter incomprehension on his face. And he said to me, why would a church ever say that? I realized the Russian church had just become a department of the state. It was now just a tribal territorial god, captured by a political leader. And Putin saw it just as a tribal nationalistic church. The patriarch of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church has called Putin a miracle of God. He's called the invasion of Ukraine a holy war. 
When we say this is all ancient, Tim, that Jeremiah is talking about, these tribal gods, no, it's not. It's here with us today, even with forms of Christianity. This God that we worship transcends all gods. Certainly, the secular gods in Australia are of pleasure and profit. This God is the God of all. That's what is so radical about Galatians 3.28. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither broncos or cowboys, neither citizens and refugees, neither even gay and straight. That might be hard for the church to say. This God is above all of the categories that shock us and distress us. I uh, am very, very much of the view that this God says, neither in Christ left or right. I say to people, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper into Jesus. Go deeper into Jesus. So often our wiring is political. We all have our politics, that's fine. But I'm often struck how in Acts 1, 6, the last question, the best question that the disciples think to ask Jesus before he ascends to heaven. You've got one last question before Jesus has gone. And what are you going to ask? Big moment. What do they ask? Lord, is this the time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? In today's language, that question would be, Lord, is now the time you'll make Israel great again? And Jesus won't have a bar of it. It's not for you to know. No, no, no. Your task is to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. Why? Because this is a God of the whole world. And this God, his image is in everyone. You know, Jesus clearly believed that God's image was even in our enemies. You know, I could, I could cope with most of the things Jesus taught, but if I was to give our Lord a little bit of free advice, when he said, love your enemies, I mean, really? If he'd said something a bit more useful like, avoid your enemies, now that's useful. If he'd stretched me a bit and said, tolerate your enemies, I'll take a deep breath, I'll try, that's hard. But to say love your enemies is completely over the top. Really? Apparently Jesus believed God's image is even in our enemies. Because this is a God of all the world. The enemies for those in exile in Babylon were the Babylonians. And here is Jeremiah saying, no, settle down. Pray for them. Pray that they'll have prosperity. Don't just go to war and culture wars. Be a witness that God's image is in everyone. Well, whether it's make Israel great again, make China great again, Putin's make Russia again, Trump's make America great again, these are nationalistic 
blood and soil, flag-waving gods. This God is above all of that. Our job is to tell the alternative story, to live it out, to love this God, to love our neighbour, whatever their skin colour, whatever their background, whatever their politics, to not even go left or right. You know, I have a very close friend. He's at St Kilda Baptist, my first church. But this close friend drives me to distraction. He drives me to distraction because... We disagree on a whole lot of things politically. He loves President Trump, as you can tell, I don't. Mind you, after January the 6th, he's not so fond of President Trump. He doesn't believe climate change is real, I do. We have a whole lot of debates, we text each other furiously. And then every now and then, one or both of us will push a text saying, Isn't it great that our identity is not in politics, our identity is in Christ? Rising above, reminding ourselves that those things are relative and we can end up almost re-tribalising, whether it's around politics or other issues, and we fail to point to the alternative story. The alternative story of a God who is above all, who sent Jesus because he loves the world, the whole world. Let me finish by saying with ACL and all churches, we had a campaign called Christians United for Afghanistan. Micah, Australia, I lead. That's a pretty extraordinary campaign. Christians united for Afghan refugees, asking for 20,000 additional places after the fall of Kabul. Then Prime Minister Scott Morrison wasn't budging. It was only 3,000. He wasn't taking any more. Wendy Francis, who's from here in Brisbane, of ACL and I, and a bishop from uh, Sydney, and a Sydney Anglican bishop, went to see them, saying, Christians are united for Muslim refugees, 20,000. The government was really surprised. I can understand why they're surprised. Have you ever seen the church and Christians ever united on anything? We're pretty good at fighting everything, have you noticed? To actually be united on Muslim Afghans was pretty surprising. Josh Frydenberg's last budget, and I am close to Josh, and I text him a lot. He sat down. 20 minutes later, Alex Hawke, the immigration minister, rings me on budget night. Tim, we haven't given you 20,000 additional places. We've given you 16,500 additional places. Micah Australia, that takes its whole mission from love, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, I hope some of these Afghans who come and have children might even call one of their sons Micah. That's why they're here in Australia. Christians who united. It reminded me of responding to an earthquake in Afghan in the north, uh, in Pakistan and the northwest province. Uh, it was very hard to get aid in there. 160,000 Pakistanis died. It was where Osama bin Laden 
reputedly was hiding out. I went, well vision helped. Muslim fundamentalist clerics and imams were so moved that World Vision came. They said, virtually no one came, and you came. You've made such a difference. And then they said, and you're Christian. Why did you come? It was one of the proudest moments for me to say, because God didn't say just love Christians. God loves the whole world. This is a God beyond the Babylonians, beyond those who are uh, even in exile and their prophets saying fight and it's just us that God loves. This is the alternative story. Proclaim it and live it out. Amen.